Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a multimedia journalism professor from Oklahoma State University. He used to review Oreos and Pizza Hut, but is a YouTube star with over 50 million views because of a Marvel video game. We welcome Professor Shane Hoffman. Thanks for having me. Shane, let's go beyond the mic. Nothing has come easy for you in life. Happiness, love, family. Let's start in the beginning. You were born in San Antonio, moved to New Mexico. You faced adversity growing up with your fellow triplet brothers and your mom. Talk about the house you lived growing up. We didn't live in a house. When we were real young, we lived in a double wide that was rat infested and had probably the most neighbors we had were the wasps living outside the front door. And then we moved to New Mexico, Rios of New Mexico in 1996. We're in third grade and lived in government housing around many people who were out of jail, people who sold drugs, people who were just the kind of neighbors you would definitely assume. Like I was much more familiar with sirens than I was familiar with silence. My brothers and I, I'm the shortest at 6'3", they're almost 6'6". I have a small shoe with a 16, they have a 17 and a half and an 18. None of us grew since the eighth grade. All three of us shared a bedroom that's not much bigger than the size of a walk-in closet. And so we had no floor space. We shared a closet because we didn't have enough room to have our own closet. And basically we were hermits that lived in a glorified storage room for 10 years before leaving that room for college. Government housing, food stamps, trying to survive painful poverty. What was Christmas like in your family? I mean, three boys trying to share soap, clothes, and a razor. Yeah, no, we we actually did have one razor between the three of us, one bar of soap between the three of us. So that's 100% correct. I think the hardest part was the older we got, the more we realized that our mom would say something like, hey, I've got $200 on the credit card. And we didn't know what that meant. But then we reached a certain age, we realized, oh, that's $200 away from maxing the credit card. And so holidays were terrible because... We didn't want her to buy us anything. We didn't need anything, but she felt like she needed to do that as our mom. And so we would actually fight her on getting us gifts because we knew she couldn't afford it. And the credit card companies would be after her for the next year to pay when she would maybe not even pay her $25 minimum a month. Holidays were always stressful. We always saw on TV what families look like with the house, car, and we didn't have any of those things. But I think all three of us really enjoyed each other's company so much that We didn't know anything else, but now looking back on it, it's pretty amazing to uh, to think about how we survived. Our grandparents, our mom's parents were really part of the reason why we did okay on the holidays because they'd come over and they'd bring a Christmas dinner and they lived in a trailer and they were able to, to be with us. And so we had some of that camaraderie. But at the same time, we never had anybody over to our house because everywhere you looked, there were boxes stacked to the ceiling because it was like a storage area. And so my mom was always embarrassed that we would have uh, a house that would just look not presentable ever. We were basically put in a situation where we had to hide our real life from our friends at school and just come out with the persona that we were like this really happy middle-class family. But really, we were living on credit cards and government housing, not just living paycheck to paycheck, but knowing at any moment the gas was going to get cut, the phone was going to get cut, and we couldn't pay even the most basic of bills from month to month. Now, did your mom make you get jobs as you grew up? I mean, I could tell from your voice that luxuries were luxuries. You didn't need anything. You didn't want anything. You just wanted family. Yeah. Again, we were our own club. So to us, we were the triplets, the Hoffman triplets. And so we had each other. Uh, What our mom was good about was she never discouraged us from doing 
extracurriculars. So we were involved in choir and basketball and tennis. We would sing the national anthem our senior year in three-part harmony acapella in our varsity warm-up jerseys at center court. And then we would go play. And we were so successful. We were kind of like a traveling freak show that we got invited to sing at the the pit, at the University of New Mexico pit for a high school uh, championship game, the national anthem, which was really cool. Our mom never made us get jobs, but we also we would have to get rides everywhere because she wasn't able to pick us up when we'd get home late from activities. And then thankfully, this is what's crazy to tell people, we would walk down a mountain to tennis, to middle school. We would walk places. And it's kind of amazing that we never got hit by a car or stopped, but we just did a lot of walking. None of us had a driver's license, not even a driver's permit. And so it would have been hard to have a job because we would have to walk to our job and we didn't live close to many jobs. But at the same time, it was just normal for us. And and it was almost like looking back on it, it's like a crazy sitcom, only it was really our life. You talk about having to walk miles from top of the mountain. How much freedom did that give you? Yeah, I think if our mom had been more supportive of that freedom, it would have felt like freedom. But we also felt like we were kind of trapped on this at the top of a mountain island because it was just us and her. And and she was somebody who was very... uh, hard on us and would lash out at times. And and we would just kind of have to take it. And the tough part is if, you know, I did something or my brothers did something, they would have to endure the same kind of verbal abuse that, you know, one of us caused. And I definitely was a, a major reason why they had to hear so much because my mom and I clashed more than anything. There were times where the freedom was so tempting that I would just want to run away off the mountain and never come back. But then I didn't have a plan. And I still have to go to school and see my brothers. So I almost left the house several times, especially in high school. I actually had my best friend who had offered me to stay with her, but I ended up staying and I think I'm thankful I stayed, but it was not, it was not your definition of a happy, loving place. It was more like your definition of surviving an island similar to like lost. You found a career you wanted to chase in seventh grade sports writing. Why was that so appealing to you? And was it a feeling that, Hey, I can do this and it can take me away from all of this. Yeah. So one thing I really appreciate about my mom is that she was a sports fan like us. So one thing we did do as a family, we'd watch San Antonio Spurs games together, Tennessee Titans games together. New Mexico is weird because it doesn't have any professional sports teams. So you're kind of in between like the Denver Broncos and the Dallas Cowboys. We fell in love with sports and we were very tall always for our age. And so we loved basketball and then eventually sprang out to things like tennis. And so I never wanted to be famous, ironically, but I wanted to be able to go to sports for free and tell those stories because growing up, professional athletes were like my superheroes. And so the idea that I could cover my superheroes from up close and I'd actually get paid to do it sounded like the greatest thing ever. And also writing for me was an escape because I was always writing in my head. One of my coping mechanisms when we were in the car and we couldn't escape and my mom was on one of her rants was to just imagine I was writing the scene of whatever was around me as I looked out the window. And that's how I kind of survived. And so the ironic thing about that was I kind of trained myself to monologue in my head. I just wouldn't say it out loud. And that's really come in handy for my YouTube videos I've learned because my brain thinks ahead so much before I talk. So I had no idea that enduring verbal abuse in a car and having to think about how I can escape that in my own head would one day be the best thing that could ever happen to me with a YouTube career. And yet I'm so thankful in a way that my mom would yell at us in the car because now it prepared me to think ahead and speak and hopefully sound articulate in a say live broadcast for my YouTube channel. Who were your sports heroes growing up? So overall hero is my grandfather for sure. My mom's dad, but sports heroes, my favorite basketball player, 
A lot of people don't remember him, but he saved the Spurs in 1999, Sean Elliott, who then eventually needed a kidney transplant. That was another heroic moment. And now he's a broadcaster, which is another, like he's been a hero for like three or four things. I was so jealous of Michael Jordan that I never wanted to look up to him because he would always beat everybody. He was like a superhero God, but I always wanted to meet John Elway because I was a big fan of the nineties Broncos teams. This is going to sound like it's, it's aged terribly, but like growing up in high school in the early two thousands, I was in awe of Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds and Tiger Woods. And that sentence sounds differently in 2021 than it did in 2004 but I just couldn't believe that those people existed. And I think it's the same feeling that a lot of people now have about say LeBron James and Tom Brady. Oh, how those heroes have fallen. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I still look up maybe because of nostalgia and maybe just because like Tiger Woods highlights, Lance Armstrong races, Barry Bonds, home runs. They're just, they seem like gods and it was incredible. and still is when I look at those highlights. We're talking to YouTube content creator, Prof Hoff beyond the mic. Shane, every time adversity stepped up to your plate, You didn't back down. You didn't have a choice. You headed to the only school you applied to, Missouri, taking out student loans and having a dream. How did leaving that top of the mountain for college free you and yet become a different type of prison? It was the greatest experience ever. I didn't know if I could do it, and I actually left first. And so one of my brothers joked Dylan that like, hey, if he can do it, anybody can do it. But I had never been by myself for more than a couple of days without my brothers. And so I thought that I probably couldn't do it. And I remember my financial aid advisor, my first week I was on campus, tell me that with my ACT score, which is 26, which was much lower than average at the University of Missouri. And also I didn't have any family, I didn't have any resources. I literally got dropped off with a bag and the clothes on my back and a couple hundred dollars and all of this debt. She said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you were home by Thanksgiving. And a lot of people would hear that and believe it. But when somebody challenges you, you have two options. You either believe them and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, or you say, screw that. I'm going to do as much as I can to prove you wrong. And I'm somebody who loves to prove people wrong. I always have been. And so I worked extremely hard and I got straight A's my first year and then proceeded to do that for the rest of my college career. But I couldn't afford to live on campus And so whenever the dorms would close, every year after that, I would essentially be homeless. That's really where the tough part came in. And I lived in six different buildings in five years. And unlike, say, an apartment, you can't, you don't have a lease. So you could live in a place for five or six months, and then you'd have to move your stuff across campus. And I had so many guardian angels, so many good friends who just knew when the semester closed, they would help me put my stuff into their car and move me or they'd help store stuff or they'd bring me back to their house so I could sleep on a couch until I figured out a plan of where I was going to live the following week. I had to rely solely on basically who God put in my life to not live or sleep on a park bench or a church pew, even though I was prepared to do both every time the dorms closed on campus. How did that fear motivate and yet scare you? Yeah. You know, the interesting thing was, I don't know if it scared me that much because there's a, there's a phrase in life, if you lose everything, you're free to do anything. And I didn't have a lot of possessions. And so every time I'd move, I'd think, I don't want to move anything. Like, I don't want anything. But you need at least sheets for a bed and, and some clothes. I learned to be a minimalist, which has really benefited me as a career adult now. But also, like, you can't slack in classes. You can't blow money because there's no margin for error 
when you live this way. If you make one big mistake, you're done. Game over. You don't have a safety net. And that benefited me greatly because I learned to survive and thrive by spending almost nothing, by saving everything I made. Because keep in mind, the only reason why I got to Mizzou was because I took out a $10,000 loan in my mom's name, which somehow the government gave us. I don't know if that was a good idea. And those loans in a parental plus way, they start being paid off immediately. There's no deferment because they think the parent's paying for it. Well, she was making minimum wage, not being able to afford rent. And so I was working work study so I could sign into a government database as her and spend 100% of the money I made from that work study to pay off her loan every month. So I started paying off student loans while I was in school, unlike a lot of people who just wait until it kicks in six months after they graduate. It sounds terrible, but it was just life. And it was like my Disneyland. So I was going to do everything I could. I was going to work five jobs if that's what it took to stay there and also not go back to New Mexico. Your dreams had to morph and change. How drastic did your dreams change from leaving the top of the mountain in New Mexico to heading to the plains of Missouri? Well, you know, we started off this interview talking about how my dream was to be a sports writer. And it was actually for the USA Today, which was a total ego trip tool move because I thought, like, especially when I'd go to hotels for high school and everybody would have a USA Today under their door. And I thought, I want to write something so everybody can read my name. Little did I know the USA Today is written like at a third grade level and nobody remembers who the bylines are for the USA Today anyway. So it's like one of the worst life goals of all time. I went from that humbling moment to think, wow, I'm, a, I'm kind of a douchebag who's got this dream that's a terrible idea to getting a chance to start teaching college classes, mentoring students who were from sometimes humble beginnings, but probably not as humble as I came from. And my dreams changed from being a sports writer to eventually being a radio broadcaster when I worked for NPR while in school. And then that morphed into graduate school. And I know we haven't gotten into this yet, but at a place I never wanted to visit, never thought I would go Oklahoma State. And then somehow uh, God has a sense of humor. And I went from thinking that I would be in Stillwater, Oklahoma for a maximum of two years to last month, I just celebrated that my 10 years in this town. Uh, like I said, God has a sense of humor, but my dreams have evolved from just being some sports writer that honestly nobody would notice to really wanting to, to mentor people and share my love of storytelling with those new generations of journalists. We're talking to YouTube content creator and Oklahoma State professor Shane Hoffman beyond the mic. Quote, best professor ever. Hoffman is the kind of teacher that makes sure he is teaching you. With group projects, it can be difficult to feel like you're still getting individual attention from the professor, but he is adamant about ensuring each student benefits from his class, unquote. What do you say to a student who's, obviously you've made such a, big impact in their life. A part of me wants to like deflect that and say, it's kind of surprising they wrote that since, you know, the check never cleared. In general, it validates my mission, which is to make sure that a student can come into one of my classes and that the slate is wiped clean. I hate in higher education how if somebody gets, say, straight C's or D's their first year, well, they're just a C student or they're just a D student. That's not necessarily true. They could have, you don't know what was going on in their past. You don't know what's going on at home. And so I love taking any student that comes in my class and not knowing what their academic background is and just trying to push them to believe in themselves. I give almost no tests, no quizzes, 
Everything is a project that's going to directly help them get an internship or a job during college or after college. I believe in practical skills application that allows students to actually have a light bulb that goes off in their head. Instead of writing a 20-page paper, they're doing a professional TV commercial for a local business to help advertise their social media campaign online. And that gives them more motivation. I also treat them like they are equals. I don't condescend them. I don't tell them I'm better than them. In fact, every time I make a pun, they feel like they're better than me. And that's kind of like me giving some of the power of the power dynamics of a student teacher uh, dynamic back to them. Now, unfortunately, at some point, the puns get to be so much that actually the power dynamic is flopped and it's reversed and they feel like they're probably up here looking down on me. But I'd rather that be the dynamic than them think that I am somebody who can never believe in them or relate to them because I'm up in the clouds and they're, you know, at the bottom of the grass. How does Oklahoma State and other professors look at your teaching style? Other tenured professors would be giving so many tests, so many quizzes, so many essays. Well, you're actually looking toward making a student better and more prepared for the real world. I think overall my colleagues are supportive. They sometimes say, well, he teaches the skills classes, which are kind of a weird thing to tell somebody. I'm not tenure track, which I think is a blessing because I don't have to do research. I don't have to be on a thousand graduate committees. And so I just get to teach. Now that is a little bit of a curse because there's usually not an opportunity for a raise or a promotion involved. But if you love what you do, you're okay on that hamster wheel for 10 straight years. But I do think it's different. You know, I I can see why some people might look at me and think, well, I don't know if that's how I teach it because higher education is so theory driven. It's so dense. And my teaching philosophy cuts out a lot of that theory for application. And sometimes that's not a very popular thing to do, especially in a traditional four-year public institution. But at the same time, if they have students that do projects in their classes and they produce great video work, I like to think they think, oh, Well, that's because Shane's doing a good job or Professor Hoffman's doing a good job of actually preparing them for the skills they're going to need in the projects that I assign them. You fought your way becoming a McNair Scholar. When you go home and tell your mom, not only am I going back to school, but taking care of the loan I took out, I'm going to teach others. What did your mom think when you told her you were continuing your education? Well, she, I think, was proud of me, but also knew that, you know, she wanted me to go to school as much as possible, but also she couldn't afford to help at all. In fact, I was helping to pay some of her bills as soon as I could afford to. And so a lot of people don't know what a McNair Scholar is. Basically, it's for first-generation and minority college students. It's a chance to have some funding to do graduate education, and in my case, get a master's degree, which is why I went from the University of Missouri to Oklahoma State. It's crazy because I, I, I wasn't planning on that. I thought I'd go straight into the journalism field when I graduated, but I had an academic advisor who had written down that I'd taken a couple of classes that was a misprint and my new academic advisor didn't catch it until it was too late and I couldn't graduate. And so I suddenly had to go another semester, which was terrifying because that was going to be money that I wasn't counting on in more student loans. But then it turned out to be the biggest blessing ever because I got to do this one year McNair Scholars postgraduate program in a sense and it prepared me for graduate school, something I literally had never thought about and didn't want to do until that very moment. He's Shane Hoffman, professor of Oklahoma State, joining us beyond the mic. Your story would be called improbable if it was made into a movie, and we're just halfway telling your story. We haven't even gotten to you being a YouTube star with over 50 million views of your content. Well, yeah, first off, like my brothers have a very similar track. I'm so proud of them because they've been so successful in their life as well. All three of us have had a journey that I think 
is totally improbable. It's fun to tell people. I feel like I'm the Billy Mays of storytelling because I tell them like a wrinkle and they're like, what? And they think I've, I've climaxed the story. It's like, oh, wait, there's more. And so it's just constantly adding in new details. But it's really a nice thing to tell people, especially students, because it helps put into perspective what struggling feels like. And don't get me wrong, there are people who've struggled far more than I have in my life. And I realize that. But at the same time, it keeps me grounded. And if my story, if my brother's story, if our story can be something that gives somebody who comes from a single parent difficult background with no money and et cetera. Uh, if we can give them hope, then we're being used for the betterment of something that's much greater than ourselves. Well, it's time for the rocking aid. Eight random questions. Answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. There is no pressure. Bring it. Best football game you've ever seen. In person? In person. I went to the, uh, I think it was 2010 Missouri hosted OU college game day was in Columbia's campus former high school Artesia, New Mexico standout Landry Jones, who I played basketball against in high school and told me that he was going to go to OU and be a big NFL star. And I told him, you're from New Mexico. You're probably not going to get out of prison. He won that argument, by the way. He came to Missouri. We hadn't beaten OU in years. We beat them on some incredible uh, national TV kind of moments, rushed the field on OU and for just a little bit, felt like we were on top. So that's that's the best football game I've seen. Honorable mention to Arrowhead Stadium when number like three Missouri played number two Kansas. And it was like 15 degrees outside. I was there at Arrowhead having just landed before the blizzard got there. And that was also something I'll never forget that came down to the wire. And Todd Reesing's helmet went into the turf and had a big chunk of grass on it. And we used that as a meme on campus, probably still to this day. Non-Marvel or DC movie that you can watch again and again. Director's cut of Remember the Titans is at the top of the list. I'm actually a big sucker for family movies like The Lion King, the OG one, but also classics like Back to the Future, Forrest Gump are at the top of the list. And honorable mention to the new movie Coda, which I just saw on Apple TV and it was life-changing for me. Place you never want to visit ever again. Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> Ouch. I almost ran out of gas because it felt like driving to the moon. And Person who inspired you to become a teacher. So my grandfather was a teacher and he was always amazing with us. And so he inspired me to have that mentorship level. But there are two people. There's a movie in the 90s. Richard Dreyfuss starred in it called Mr. Holland's Opus. And I loved that movie. It's still a top five favorite movie. And he was an incredible, flawed, but relatable figure in that movie that I wanted to be. And then there was a show growing up called Boy Meets World with Mr. Feeney. And he was also somebody that really inspired me to be a teacher. So those two. And then there was a, a middle school teacher named Mrs. Steerwald who believed in me more than anybody else and was like a second mom to me and helped me really find my voice by having me enter in uh, speech competitions for years and actually won the, the town speech competition and then the whole state. The only other person who had ever done that was a man by the name of Neil Patrick Harris, which is funny because they called me like Big Neil when I was there because these people were like 80 years old and remembered both of us. She inspired me. Those uh, media people spot inspired me and my grandfather inspired me. What's the best advice you were ever given? So there's a guy by the name of Lynn Willard, who was another mentor of ours growing up in uh, he and his wife were amazing. They were both mentors. One was a high school English teacher, and he was a veterinarian that just took us under his wing. And when we went to the University of Missouri to visit, because he took me there, and that's how I was able to at least see the campus before I stepped on it freshman year, I introduced myself as Shane. 
And he pulled me aside and said, never do that again. And I said, what? What do you mean? And he said, this is a huge campus. No one's going to remember Shane. But if you say you're Shane Hoffman, that's going to carry some weight. And so from that day on, I never introduced myself without my full name. And it actually came in handy multiple times. And so I'll never forget that advice. It was really good. What emotion is your least favorite and the hardest for you to understand? Disappointment. When I disappoint somebody, when I let them down, that's when I, I ball like a baby because I feel like I failed somebody. Um, a runner up in that question would be what the kids now call ghosting. When you think that you've, you're friends with somebody or you've made a romantic connection and they don't have the courtesy of telling you they don't want to talk to you anymore and they just stop responding to your messages. I have yet in 33 years of my life to figure out how to emotionally not just be devastated to the point of despair when that happens, especially if it's somebody that I viewed as a close friend. What's the best type of steak and how would you like to have it cooked? All right. So sometimes when my students do well on a project, I'll say like a bad steak, well done. And so I'm a huge fan of medium rare. And I truly believe just as it's much easier to put on a jacket And so I prefer cold weather over hot weather. It's much easier to put a steak back on a grill if it's too rare, but once it's overcooked, you can't do anything about it. So personally, my my grandfather raised us to eat like solid pink hamburgers, which grosses people out, but we didn't know any difference. We thought they were amazing and we didn't have steak growing up because it was way too expensive. So when we finally got to have steak, I realized that I prefer it to be more pink than not. What kind of steak? So... I think because I still, I'm still pretty much a novice. Most of what I've had is sirloin, but really the New York strip is what I think is my preference because it's like two steaks in one, right? Ah, uh, the porterhouse. Porterhouse is number one. And then this is going to sound Gucci, but when I went on an all expense cruise once, I had filet mignon and it's tough to beat a great filet. Let's get the brass tacked. Who is the best basketball player of you and your brothers when you played in Rio Doso? Um, I'm the best offensively. My Dylan's the best defensively. Cody's the best free throw shooter. But I would say, like, objectively, when we graduated, Dylan was the best high school player, and I was the best middle school player. <laughs> it's time for the back half with Professor Shane Hoffman. Some of you might know him as Prof Hoff on YouTube, Beyond the Mic. Ten years ago, you started a side gig. 50 million views later, you earn more money from YouTube than from your daily job. Does that number blow you away? 50 million views? Yeah, nothing seems real about this. I still feel like I'm dreaming. And any day somebody's going to tap me on the shoulder, and I'm going to say that was the greatest dream of my life. I don't know how I got to live it for so long, but it's incomprehensible because my YouTube channel started, as you referenced at the beginning, with Oreos and pizza. It was hard to get 10 views, like 10 total views. And most of those were me refreshing the page, thinking maybe somebody had watched it. And I was just giving myself a view, which doesn't really count in the overall thing. So like people don't realize getting to a hundred views on a YouTube video is not easy at all. Triple digits. And so I started out with less than 50 subscribers. Most of those people were Facebook friends that I swear only followed my YouTube channel to either dislike the videos or to feel better about themselves because they knew they weren't humiliating themselves on some kind of public media channel. You've got passionate fans and haters. How did this job where you earn more money than your salary as a professor start? 
Well, I owe so much of it in terms of the Marvel Contest of Champions side to my brother, Dylan, who encouraged me when I visited him in, in Portland, Oregon. And this was after, I know we're probably going to go more on this, after the most depressed I had been in my life. I mean, I was so depressed I couldn't get out of bed. I called off an engagement. I had major regrets about it, major second guessing. I basically thought I'd made the biggest mistake of my life and I was playing MCOC but I wasn't really enjoying it because I felt like I was just doing the same thing over and over again. I wasn't getting any better. I didn't even know if I really knew anything about the game. I knew it wasn't very good. So I visited him. I made the mistake of telling him, which sounds ridiculous when you don't play, I'm going to retire from the game. And he's like, retire. You're not a professional athlete going into retirement. You're just, you're on your phone. So he encouraged me to at least upload and record my last major crystal opening that I'd saved up. And I posted it. The audio quality was terrible. I know I didn't know anything about what I was doing, but more people watched it almost instantly than any of the pizza and Oreo videos I had posted for the most part in the last several years. And I just felt like if somebody wanted me to, to post it and somebody enjoyed it, then I should try to do it again. And so I would do maybe one video every two weeks, so like two videos a month. And that turned into a couple videos a week and then a video a day, and now I drop seven to eight videos a day, uh, including broadcasting every night live. And then on top of that, I am now viewed in about over 120 countries. 120 countries. How does that change a person? So the most amazing thing is when I hear from some of these fans, like I had a group of Asian doctors who all played the game. They would put my YouTube videos up on like an iPad and watch them while they were eating their 3 a.m. meals. And so I recorded like a video of me just looking into the camera and saying, hey, y'all, thank you so much for supporting my channel. And apparently one of them played it on the iPad as a surprise and they screamed and fangirled like it was like girls at a Taylor Swift concert, uh, which was amazing. But I also have had moments where a dad will reach out to me and say, hey, you're my favorite son's YouTube channel. He watches you religiously. He just got his first ever A's and B's report card, I'd love for you to shout him out. And so I'll insert that shout out. And then he actually recorded his son watching it. And the guy starts running around the room like his hero is saying his name. And the fact that like, I I can't comprehend that that's me. I can comprehend that it's happening, but it's happening for somebody else. It can't possibly be happening for me because how can I affect somebody that much when I'm just some random dude in the middle of Oklahoma? And yet, you know, it's hard to argue with the results. And so it's, it's just the, the most blessing, the most blessed thing I've ever done. And on top of that, it has really impacted how I teach because students actually will listen to me a lot more now that I have a successful YouTube channel than when I told them that I worked for a small NPR station in Columbia, Missouri. Now your students have also gotten the benefit as you were teaching them, creating their own YouTube channel. Bingo. So I teach a senior capstone course and we spend a lot of time talking about side hustles and freelancing and it's one of those things where like my students don't play Marvel contest of champions. So they would never watch me. But when you pull up the analytics and when you pull up the revenue, their eyebrows go up. So they may not understand what the heck I'm talking about ever, but they do understand that the best way to earn income on YouTube is to follow a similar content creating path and find their own niche community and then grow it from there. Now this is important. There are the content creators that have empty content. What's the difference between good content creators and bad content creators? And I've got to say, I'm sure depending on the video you reference on my channel, I've been both. 
I've had to learn how I've made mistakes and sometimes how I've let people down, but hopefully I've also been able to learn when I've done well and made people thankful that they've subscribed or commented or watched the video. I think bad content creators have what's called clickbait on their channel where they will promise you something in a thumbnail or the title of something and then you'll click on it and it will be like you were deceived. You were lied to and it wasn't worth your time. And when you watch someone's YouTube video, you're giving them your time. And so it's really important that you don't waste it. Good content creators not only try to post consistent content to reward their audience for subscribing, but they also are constantly pushing themselves to tell the truth, to put out quality content, and to take risks by maybe uh, trying new things. Like one of my favorite things about YouTube is that as long as you can upload a video, it can be about anything the only limit to your imagination is what you're willing to try. What are the importance of content creation in your mind? First off, I think the most important thing about YouTubers is that anyone can be one. Before the internet, you needed to work at a TV station. You needed a broadcast license. You were going to be subjected to FCC laws. You had to pay yearly fees. It was very expensive to be heard even in a regional setting in say a state. Whereas now content creators, I don't care if they're a Kardashian or there's somebody who's got two subscribers and just does vlogs. If you have a computer and a working microphone, you can change somebody somebody's life and you could go viral for better or for worse overnight. Now, of course, the drawback to that is sometimes you can be famous for all the wrong reasons. And what I'd like to think on my channel, even though I spend the majority of the time just answering subscriber questions and fan mail more than I do playing the game or certainly creating content, is that I'm the same person and I'm just as approachable at 50 million views and 60,000 subscribers as I was when I had 50 views and five subscribers. Before we get to what made you do this, do you regret canceling your engagement to your fiance? I did for a long time. I don't now. But if you'd asked me that question, maybe even two years after I did, I would have said yes. I mean, I was so lost and so purposeless. And the thing about teaching is that I only teach about seven months a year. So I had five out of, seven, uh, five out of 12 months to just sit around and be lonely. She married someone else six months, almost to the day after we were supposed to walk down the aisle. So while I was at my all-time lowest, she was in married. And so I felt like I had let the greatest thing that ever happened to me go. But in all reality, I allowed myself to be on a path to eventually find this hobby, uh, do so much with it, not just hopefully to change people's lives or at least impact their day better, but to chase a dream that never would have been a possibility had I stayed on that path. Now, looking back after your therapist recommending you do something out of your comfort zone, which turned into... YouTube channel with Oreos, Pizza Hut, and now Marvel Contest of Champions. Would you do anything different? Uh, I think when I started my YouTube channel, I didn't really know what clickbait was. And so I thought I was being creative and clever, but really I was being stupid and lazy. And so I would use the tactics that I have learned on my videos in recent years better at the beginning. I wouldn't, um, I just wouldn't be as, as lazy. I, I think part of the reason why I justified it was because I thought I was going to be off YouTube in like two weeks. 
So I was going to try to do some things that were kind of crazy and kind of dumb, but it wasn't going to matter because I wasn't going to last. And now I have. And so, yeah, but I think sometimes in life, I don't care if it's YouTube or relationships or jobs, like you need to try and learn how to not do dumb stuff. And the only way that you can learn from your mistakes is by making them, even though they're not fun to talk about, especially when you know that you've done something embarrassing, it still is far valuable, far more valuable than if you, uh, you just never did anything you regretted. You spend hours, hours every day responding to every post comment that people, that your listeners make to you. Some people would say that that's not the best use of your time, but you still do it. Why? Well, because they're the reason why I'm a success. Uh, They're the reason why I've been able to achieve my dreams. I mean, I I remember growing up, you talked about sports heroes. The people I looked up to the most were the ones that would stay and sign autographs for five hours after the game, not ones that would sign the first three people that walked up and then walk away. And so I always told myself, if I got in an influential position where there are people who wanted to seek me out, I would give them my time no matter how long it took. Now, I, I don't think it's sustainable. I think it's actually gotten to be pretty unhealthy. And I don't really notice that until I visit friends or family and they see just how much I do even on quote unquote vacation. But at the same time, while I'm not married, while I don't have any kids, and while I can afford to stay up till 3 a.m. in the morning and get three or four hours of sleep to make it happen, I'm going to do it as long as I can knowing I gave everything I could to everyone I could help until I just couldn't do it anymore. When the Marvel Contest of Champions video game shuts down and you have to move on, what will be your next project? Well, it's interesting you ask that because (laughs) at first I was like, maybe I can go back to pizza and Oreos. (laughs) But uh, no, now uh, I love doing what you're doing right now. I love interviewing people. I love talking to people. It kind of combines all my loves into one. I was blessed enough to interview a, game designer for Kabam for the game in the last couple of weeks. And it was the most fun I've ever had doing anything on my YouTube channel. And what the thing I was most surprised about, because yeah, there are quite a few people out there who despise my channel, but they watched it and they liked the interview. And the fun thing about doing interviews is that because you ask questions and then get out of the way, you're not trying to create controversy. You're just trying to learn. And so it's a controversial free medium, if there is such a thing, at least compared to taking a stance on something in the game and knowing a certain percentage of the community is going to be ticked off because of what you think. And it also frees you to not be as critical or perceiving to be as negative because it's just about having a conversation with someone, especially about their life. It's not about editorializing a certain situation. Now you're known as Prof Hoff puns. Do you remember your first pun on Twitter? I do not. Do you, do you know it? Well, I happen to have it here. Quote, I would consider my verbose verbiage to be what is described as, quote, cool, unquote. But when I tweet about birds, they're exceptionally fly, unquote. Oh, well, I'm surprised I wasn't making a uh, airplane reference with that pun. Although I sort of sound like an egotistical jerk with that. Like verbose? What the hell was I thinking? Family is so important to you. What's the favorite moment from your family? Well, and I appreciate the question because, you know, I don't want people to listen to this and just think that I had a a horrible childhood or that my mom didn't do a good job raising us because she still did an exceptional job in a lot of ways. You know, we actually had, and I don't know how she could afford it, but we had moments like where we would get way back in the day, like the Super Nintendo that we were all dreaming about, and it would be the most exciting thing. And then we'd have barbecue for Christmas dinner, 
and we'd play Super, well, I was going to say Super Smash Bros. Really, Super Mario RPG Legends, the seven stars, our favorite game ever. Uh, and so we would just feel like a normal family. And our family did an amazing job of coming. Our mom never missed basketball games. She even came to our tennis matches, even though I don't know if she really knew what was going on all the time. And so, like, we had a very supportive family. Our grandparents would come to basketball games. And so I think it was just this belief that we were all in this together. And I didn't know how, how rare that was until I'd come to college and ask people about their families. And they'd say, oh, I talk to my siblings a couple times a year. And I'd be like, what? I talk to my siblings sometimes a couple times an hour. And so we got this incredible triplet uh, club where we, to this day, will text each other multiple times a day sharing everything from the food we're eating to the fantasy sports wins that we're getting to have to life's highs and life's lows. And, and we support each other and we're there for each other. And we knew no matter how many friends we could make or couldn't make outside of each other, we always had each other. And so we were never alone. We like to joke that's because God gave us womb mates and it really is true. And so the best family memories were just all of us together, whether it be on Christmas morning or playing sports or a choir concert. What was the first big gift you gave your mom? Uh, the first big gift I gave her was an all-expense-paid trip to visit me at the University of Missouri. How'd that make you feel? when, Mom, I got all the student loans that I took out in your name. They're paid off. Come on up and see me. It was one of the most healing moments of my life because I knew – that all the trauma that I went through, most of which was not her fault because she was suffering for some mental health issues that were outside of her control. Um, I knew that, that I had made it and that she could enjoy it and I could share it with her and that I could give her some rest and she was not very good at resting. And so to turn off her phone and just be able to give her a bed to sleep in and to take her to my favorite restaurants and know that she didn't have to worry about paying for a penny of any of it was a dream come true knowing that growing up, none of us ever had a penny to our name. It's time for one big question with Professor Shane Hoffman, Prof Hoff, beyond the mic. Shane, do you feel love is obtainable to all or just a lucky for you? So I guess we'd, we'd have to start by defining the so many different kinds of love. Um, I think the beauty of Christian love is that it's something that you give. You don't expect to just receive it. And so in that sense, I think we have the power as human beings to share love with anyone as long as we take the time to recognize it and extend it. But as far as romantic love, uh, some people find it, some people don't. But what makes life exciting is that with so many billions of people in the world, there's always a chance you could wake up and find it. And so that's what gets a lot of people out of bed, just as I guess it's just as exciting in some ways to create a YouTube channel and content that hopefully somebody can click on and maybe make a new friend that way. He is the best offensive basketball triplet in middle school. John Elway was a hero and will always stop to remember the Titans. Professor Shane Hoffman, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic.